It's, uh, it's so cool uh, to be able to be in the scriptures with y'all this evening. Why don't you uh, go to Luke 2. Everybody has their favorite gospel, I think. Do you have a favorite gospel? Uh, all of them, all of the above. Yeah, that's good. Um, I hear a lot of people say they love John, um, and I understand that. John is an amazing book. And, but I have noticed if people are nailed down to a particular favorite, um, one of those, uh, if, it, if it's Luke, usually it's more of the engineering kind of mind or the, the person who's really into the facts and historical evidence and, and defending of the faith and those kinds of things. That's where the gospel of Luke really is um, perhaps the, the strongest of all the gospels in, in the sense that that might just be why Luke wrote the book itself. Um, it's a scholarly analytical approach to the writing of the gospel. Um, and we uh, talked about that a little bit on the introduction to the gospel of Luke. Um, speculation, one thing we talked about is that, that Luke could have been a legal document that Paul was gonna use in his defense in Rome for the gospel. Um, so, Pretty cool that Luke is, is uh, so exacting in detail. And you'll see that even here in the story of the birth of Jesus. We're gonna see details and things that we didn't see in the other gospels, uh, which is pretty cool. Tonight, uh, we have the Christmas story. You might say, Brett, this is weird that we're going through Christmas uh, in September. Um, but, um, but as it turns out, um, did you know that um, Jesus was actually not born on December 25th? Did you know that? Um, there's a huge group of scholarship and those that study such things that say it was actually September. Isn't that perfect? It's perfect to be here in September studying the gospel of Luke and its nativity scene of Jesus because there's real evidence of that, that, that you, you can make a great argument. Again, I wouldn't die on this battlefield, but um, you know, here in Luke chapter two, we have some, uh, some clues uh, along with the rest of the narrative of the Bible, um, of why Jesus uh, was probably born not in December. Um, when did we get the December 25th date? Well, it actually goes back to, uh, interestingly, um, you know, swapping out the solstice, winter solstice and Saturnalia with the Roman paganism. When, when Christianity came to Rome uh, after Constantine and then, you know, became the sort of the legal religion of Rome, um, they, they decided instead of you know, doing the pagan things, we'll just swap them around to make them sort of fit our Christian narrative. Um, and so it's, it just so happens that you know, the winter solstice and Saturnalia was part of their, their pagan worship. And so they, uh, and there's, it goes way back, even to Nimrod, Semiramis, Tammuz. There's a whole narrative that's kind of interesting about that stuff. Um, but it's very probable that Jesus was not born anywhere near around December 25th. Now, there are some traditions that would say that Jesus was conceived around the 25th of December. Um, again, that's a tradition. We don't, we don't read that per se in the Bible, um, but you say, Brett, why would you even make a point of this? Well, um, some scholars suggest that there's a complex set of calculations you can make. I'm gonna just wet the whistle just a little bit here. Here's some clues that you should be aware of if you're interested in this. When was Jesus actually born? Um, one of the things we have in the Bible is the proximity to John the Baptist's birth. We read about that in Luke 21, uh, 1, 26 to 27, where uh, Jesus will be born, we know, six months after John the Baptist. So that's, that's clue number one that, that we have. Clue number two that's noteworthy, do you remember uh, Zacharias? He was serving in the temple. And if you recall, we, we talked a little bit about the order by which he served in the temple um, it was the course of Abiah, Luke 1, 5. 
And um, that's just a shortening of a bijah, by the way, Greek versus um, Hebrew and stuff like that. But, um, you know, First uh, Chronicles 24, seven through 19 talks about how um, that order uh, was the eighth to Abijah. So here's the thing, if Zechariah was on his first duty, there were two courses of duties uh, for Zechariah. If he was on his first course, uh, John would have been conceived uh, around June and born in March. Uh, if, if you kind of go with the Hebrew order of Abijah where Zechariah was serving in the temple when he got the news that his wife Elizabeth was pregnant with child. Um, by the way, when you're doing the calendar stuff, you have to use the Jewish lunar calendar with leaps and days, months that line up with the solar calendar. Uh, you, you don't use the Gregorian calendar like, like what we use. So that's an important thing. But basically their ecclesiastical calendar, um, the church or religious calendar, I should say, um, began in the month of Nisan and would end around March. Um, and so basically, if, if you follow with John the Baptist's dad, Zachariah, when he heard about John the Baptist's birth in nine months, where he didn't talk for nine months, if you kind of do the math on that, it puts Jesus born mid-September. Uh, so Merry Christmas to y'all. Um, by the way, uh, a few other clues that are kind of interesting. Clue number three, shepherds outside with their sheep. Um, if you know what goes on in the hillsides of Bethlehem, it snows there in the winter. I, I've been in Jerusalem, which is just you know a few miles from Bethlehem. Um, and, and when it snows up there, it's, it's brutal. Like I've been there when there was a foot of snow in Jerusalem. Um, and, um, and the shepherds didn't hang out in the fields by night in the middle of winter. They would go out in the fields at night um, more uh, in the summer and fall months and what have you. Um, it would be very cold in December and, and um, they, would, they would probably do uh, different uh, alternatives. We'll talk about that maybe later. Uh, clue number four that you should know about, uh, winter would make it hard for travel. Um, remember there was a consensus, there was a census, pardon me, taken, counting the people. Um, and it would have been a harebrained idea to do that in the winter when the snow was falling and cold and hard to travel. Um, so the, consent, uh, the, the census, pardon me, uh, that was taken, um, you know, m probably wasn't during the winter. They didn't do a lot of traveling in the, in the wintertime. It would have been bad for this census number if you're trying to get an accurate number. Do you remember in Matthew 24, 20, um, you know, in the prophecy there, but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. It was a big thing in first century. We, we just get in our car and turn on the heater and put on chains or, uh, you know, we, we can travel, but, but it wasn't the case in those days. So that's a big deal that it would be hard for travel. Clue number five, this is where there's that tradition that uh, Jesus was conceived on December 25th by the Holy Spirit to Mary. Clue number six, another tradition uh, that Elijah was arriving at Passover. Um, and this is, this is not as much in the Bible, but it is possible as the oral tradition of Jews would talk about the coming of Elijah, which we know was John the Baptist, sort of the spirit of Elijah on him. Uh, so it was around the Passover, so that would have fit the, the narrative. Uh, number seven, I'm just giving you quick ones, the proximity of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, as it's called, major pilgrimage uh, festival. Um, it commemorates the period of time when the children of Israel out in the wilderness wandering, and they were gonna be in tents in the wilderness, uh, and the, there was a, the celebration of booths or tents. Um, but it is interesting because um, J John chapter one, you remember when he said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then he said, and the word, of, word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. The word dwelt there is tabernacled or uh, like tent, you know, tent town. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is uh, um, Sukkot, but the Greek word is skenao, which means tabernacle, uh, to abide in a tent. And that's interesting that it, John said, and Jesus tabernacled among us. Um, you know, so there's some interesting correlations about the Feast of Tabernacles. And by the way, all the New Testament, if you kind of have Jesus' birth mid-September, uh, it actually lines up with Old Testament Jewish pilgrimages and feasts altogether, uh, clue number eight. Um, th there's some really interesting ones. You can see the birth would be Sukkot, crucifixion, Passover, Holy Spirit um, coming down on the day of Pentecost there in Acts chapter two. So you say, Brett, are you saying for sure that Jesus was born in September? No, but there is scholarly work that has been done and they've done the math. I just gave you some of the evidences that some people use to say it really probably was September. That's what they, they believe. I think I always kind of land, um, you know, regardless of when this actually happened, the biggest thing that you and I rejoice about is that it did happen, uh, whether it was September or October or whenever. Um, um, but I don't mind celebrating in December, um, uh, you know, because it's snow and Christmas and, you know, uh, chestnuts roasting on a hope, open fire. I'm all about that. That's cool. I'm good with Christmas in December. But Brett, it's not his actual birthday. You're just going with paganism. No, I'm not. If I were celebrating winter solstice and um, worshiping uh, Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz, then I'd be doing paganism. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, our family, we're, we're a very busy family and uh, we celebrate birthday on the first open day uh, around our birthdays. Uh, usually within a week or two of our birthday, we'll have a celebration because it's so hard to hit the right date, you know, uh, oftentimes that's just our family. So I don't have a problem with uh, celebrating Christmas in December. Um, but all that to say, uh, just so you know, uh, we're actually probably closer to the date right now than we will be when we're in December. Well, Luke chapter uh, two begins, it says, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Sounds like today, um, <laughs> taxation. What a bummer. Um, Caesar Augustus, interesting uh, person in history. Um, Caesar, his, his name was uh, originally Octavian. If you uh, are kind of... Uh, a tourist when it comes to history. Some people believe Octavian and Caesar Augustus were two separate guys, but he went through several different name changes during his reign. But Caesar Augustus um, was part of this um, trilogy rule. Uh, Octavian, which was Caesar Augustus, and he ruled the West. Uh, Mark Anthony uh, ruled the East uh, with Cleopatra, remember Richard Burton, Elizabeth uh, Taylor, um, if you know that old movie. Um, I had Mark Anthony and Le uh, Lepidus uh, was in, uh, South in Africa region of the Roman Empire. So there were three uh, triumvirates is what they called them, but it was like a trilogy rule. Um, but there was conflict between the trilogy and in 31 BC at the Battle of Actium, uh, Octavian won victory over Anthony um, and uh, became known at, uh, after that as Caesar Augustus. Um, he's kind of known as the first Roman emperor, uh, which if you know the history, 27 BC was when that happened. Um, now what's funny about Caesar Augustus is largely he's known for being peaceful. 
Um, but the reason that is, is before he was named Caesar, he was a warmonger and he killed everybody that was his enemy. So he killed everyone and then he changed his name and then it was peaceful for 40 years. Uh, so you could call him peaceful if you want to, but he, he got there by lots and lots of bloodshed, um, which is kind of uh, shocking as far as history. But it's funny, he's known for being peaceful. It reminds me a little bit about, you know, your perspective. Uh, when reading history, you, you oftentimes get to read the people who won and their, their take on things. Um, yeah, so the Romans are like, we're victorious, we're living peaceful. Do you think the Jews felt like they were living peacefully? Uh, no, they were under the iron fist of Rome. So it's all kind of perspective, uh, which side you're on. But Caesar Augustus was known for being peaceful generally in history, but the Jews would beg to differ to say the least. And they had to pay huge taxes um, uh, to uh, Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Caesar. Now, by the way, Caesar Augustus was the one who made the decree by the time Jesus came on the scene, that decree was still in place, but his successor was Tiberius, um, the Caesar during Jesus's ministry, just in case you're getting your Caesars kind of confused and what have you. So um, it, it is interesting, the so-called peace. You know, Jesus said, peace give I to thee, not as the world gives. See, the world might say, well, it was peaceful, but Jesus says, I give you a real peace. Uh, not as the world gives, give it. Let not your heart be troubled, no, nor let it be afraid. Um, that's a good word for you and me. Maybe you're watching what's going on in the news today and seeing what's going on around. Um, there's all kinds of bad news if you're watching what's going on around the world. Um, but as Christians, we have a peace that passes understanding and goes beyond understanding. And Jesus is in fact, the Prince of Peace. So pretty cool uh, that Jesus is born during a time where taxation uh, was, uh, you know, uh, the old don't tread on me, taxation without representation. Well, that's, that's what the Jews were dealing with for sure. Um, so we see Caesar Augustus was the guy who decreed the, the tax and the Romans were all in charge at this time, not a, not a peaceful time for the Jews. And verse two, this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now, some of you may say, well, whoop-dee-doo, who cares who was governor of Syria at that time? Um, I always find it interesting when, when you see something in the Bible that you're kind of like, why does the Bible even record who was the governor of Syria? Don't we care about who was the governor of Israel only? Why talk about that? Um, well, don't really know except for this. It was so funny because for decades, centuries really, critics of the Bible said, we all know that verse two of Luke chapter two is totally wrong. And they made this big argument about uh, Cyrenius, um, of Syria, the governor of Syria, uh, because they knew that uh, Cyrus was the governor of Syria, not during the time of Christ, um, but actually way earlier. Um, by the way, the Greek version of his name is Cyrenius. The Roman ver version of his name is Quirinius. Uh, they, they sometimes swap the C for a Q when they went from like Greek to Latin and what have you. Like Caesarea today, if you go to Caesarea today, it's its Roman name, Cusaria, which is like a Q. Um, and you'll, you'll be looking for Caesarea all day long if you don't look for the Q instead of the C. Anyway, all that to say, that's what happened with this guy, Cyrenius. His full name was Publius Supplicus Carinus. Um, and he was appointed council 12 BC. So this is what all the secular guys said. See, 12 BC, he wasn't, he wasn't the governor of Syria. And there were other governors after him. So we know he wasn't the governor. Well, he was appointed council in 12 BC, but he had a couple different times being governor on and off actually. Um, 
we found this and, and the Bible was proven correct once again as archeological digs always prove the Bible. I love this. There's, there's countless versions of these. I love that the cynics, the critics, the skeptics of the Bible, they always wanna find some little obscure name like this and say, see, this is wrong, this is wrong. You know, they can't say anything wrong about Jesus being born, dying on a cross, raising from the dead. So they're gonna say, well, the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. And this will be one that your professors you know, still who don't have the latest information, they'll still say, well, we know this Quirinius guy was not even in, in power at the time of Christ. But in archeological digs, they found coins that were issued by Quirinius, the governor of Syria, bearing the date, the 36th year of, of Caesar, Augustus, um, calculated uh, around AD five and six, um, which confirmed that he had multiple times when he would serve as governor of Syria. The, uh, the census that he conducted in Syria was confirmed by an inscription commemorating a Roman officer who served under him. And so um, the archeological digs just keep coming up right about, well, the Bible knew what it was talking about. Um, remember when Jesus said, um, you know, when they said, as the people were yelling Hosanna on the Palm Sunday road, um, they said, Jesus, stop these people from saying this stuff. And Jesus said, if, if I don't, if I stop them, even the rocks will cry out. Well, the rocks are crying out. Uh, archeological digs, man. Every time they dig in the rocks in the Middle East, it only shows the Bible to be true and that Jesus is in fact um, the son of the living God. So don't let your you know, pipe puffing, cardigan sweater wearing professors, if you're a college student, uh, derail your faith. A lot of them have, uh, are, are, have an agenda that's very anti-Bible, anti-inspiration, and they also won't admit when they're wrong, I've noticed, and they, they keep promoting wrong information over and over again. Be careful. Um, it's amazing to me that scholars continue to try to disprove the Bible, but fail every single time. Um, well, enough about that. So Cyrenius or Quirinius uh, was the governor of Syria, which is funny that it's in the Bible because it became a big point of contention. Verse three. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and the city, uh, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Um, you know, one of the views we always have of this story is, oh, poor Mary. You know, the, the songs we sing around Christmas and, oh, Mary, you're so poor, you're pregnant and traveling in the snow, um, which we already just determined is probably not snowing yet. Um, um, was Mary really actually bummed in this whole story? Brad, if I had to ride a donkey that many miles, I'd be bummed. Yeah, but, you know, those Bible people were tough people and they, they were used to this kind of stuff. Um, I almost wonder if, if Mary... Um, we sell her short by saying, oh, she with downtrodden head riding the donkey. Oh, Joseph, I, I think it's time, you know? And we think, oh, you know, this poor girl and everything. But I, I almost wonder because um, wouldn't you be bummed if you're Mary in heaven and you're seeing all these churches talking about how poor she was? If she was like, this is awesome. Like what if she had a really positive outlook about everything? Have you ever thought about that? We superimpose um, sort of the negative thing. Um, do you remember, um, uh, you know, there in Luke chapter one, verses 37 through 36, 30, 30, 37 through 38, um, uh, you know, it says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. She said, 
whatever is gonna happen to me, let it happen, bring it on. Like she said that with a real positive, affirming sort of attitude. Um, and everything would be perfectly orchestrated, just like the scriptures declared. Um, here they are going to Bethlehem, which is, uh, uh, you know, the Bible tells us here in Luke, well, it's because Joseph's lineage went through Bethlehem and that's where he had to go to be taxed. Uh, your, your place where your you know, ancestors were from. And so he went to Bethlehem, but isn't that, what a coincidence. Micah chapter five, verses two and three prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Epaphra, um, though it be little among the thousands of cities in, in Judea. You know, we sing, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Uh, like, and, and Bethlehem, you know, because Jesus was born there, it puts it on the map. Um, there's a few other stories linked to the Messiah, Ruth being one of them, um, you know, prophecies about Bethlehem. But, um, but Bethlehem really was a nothing town. Um, you know, it'd be like uh, saying, oh, something really special is in Dundee. Like, what, what's special, what special in Dundee? Um, uh, I don't know, uh, that, that's like Bethlehem. Uh, there's nothing special about it. But what happened there with Jesus uh, and the prophecy about this little nothing town, that's what I want you to get to see is the prophecy was about a little nothing town. Um, and the Lord orchestrated something large, the consensus of the whole Roman empire to make sure something small came to pass that, that Joseph and Mary would travel to Bethlehem. I love how the Lord, um, he knows how to make things work out according to his plan. So, you know, what was her attitude? Be it unto me according to thy word. Um, I wonder if, if we had that same attitude. I wanna, you know, show that just that attitude had to be more positive than a lot of the hallmark cards of Mary downtrodden looking depressed. And the reason why is when you say, be it unto me according to thy word, that's, that's a can-do kind of attitude. That, that's, that's game on, ready to roll. And we should have that same attitude. Um, when something unplanned happens to you, um, you can recognize that God is orchestrating events according to his plan, or you can be frustrated and angry about what's going on. Mary is the, the one who trusted and said, the Lord is able to do what he, he's gonna do. Um, so I, li I, I really like Mary and, and her uh, just, it seems to me, toughness that you see. But verse six, it goes on and it says, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So here we have this perfect stage set, a stage. What a, what a, what a grand um, you know, theater here of, of events. This is the biggest event in the history of the world that God's visiting humanity. And so she's ready to give birth. The, the shepherds are out in their fields uh, and, um, and Jesus is now born and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Interesting thing to note, verse seven there, um, where it says swaddling clothes. Um, one thing you might miss is the Greek word there for um, uh, swaddling uh, clothes, uh, the swaddling part. Um, it's sparango, which means to wrap uh, in strips of cloth or, or swaddling clothes is the Greek word. But it comes from the, uh, the Greek word. Um, it's like the, the root word is really um, uh, sparagonon, which means a strap or wrapping with strips, which is, by the way, the same cloth that they would wrap people uh, mummies with. 
grave clothes, the same kind of wrapping. Um, so there's a link to the, the, the clothes that he'd be wrapped in. Uh, you say, Brad, you know, this is probably just what they wrapped babies in, right? No, it's not. Um, we're gonna see uh, they, they're, uh, this, this idea of the, the grave clothes, the sar- sargon, like when you see a mummy from Egypt, that's the, the, the word they would have used in the Greek to describe the grave clothes wrapped in a mummy. And you'll lie him in a manger. Again, we think that's so normal. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and they laid him in a manger. That's not normal. A manger was a feeding trough. And in Bible times, the feeding troughs, we took some of these pictures when we were in Israel. Um, this is, this is um, up at Megiddo where uh, some Solomon's horse stables were, but they had these biblical era mangers sitting there where they would pour the feed into these stone, they're hewn out stone mangers. We have the nice little wooden crossed leg, wooden manger uh, that Jesus was laid in. Not so, that's not how it happened. Um, it was a stone manger. Um, now, the, the, the reason I go into all this is I wonder, was there imagery of not only his birth, but also his death? You know, you see the, the same swaddling clothes you'd wrap a mummy in. They laid him in a manger, uh, which was the same kind of thing they, when they laid him in a tomb. Um, I, I wonder if there's kind of a foreshadow of the tomb that he would be laid in. Don't know, but we do know this, um, that Jesus was born to die uh, for the sins of the world. What a shock uh, that God would become a man so that he could die on the cross for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God that would uh, take away the sins of the world. Well, um, the pictures here, uh, we could go on and on about this, but there um, in verse nine and low, um, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. Um, So these shepherds freak out when they see the angel. uh, by the way, I, I mentioned the shepherds being out there at nighttime. They'd only be out there in the summer or in the early fall um, because of the weather. I already said that. Where would they be? Uh, by the way, if you've never read this book, it's a highly recommended book. I think we probably have it in our bookstore back there. Um, uh, Philip Keller uh, wrote, uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And this guy was a real shepherd in the Middle East. And he writes about what shepherds and the way they rolled and what they did both in modern times and in biblical times. Um, But uh, one of the things he argues is he says that shepherds would go into caves and barns, anywhere they could get shelter during the wintertime. They wouldn't be out at nighttime. Uh, You know, uh, another reason why Jesus' birth is most likely not in December like we talked about. Um, But um, the idea is shepherds. Another thing that Philip Keller talks about is shepherds were the lowest position on the sort of career path. If you were a shepherd, you were the lowest of the low, um, considered even to be unclean. Uh, If you were a shepherd, you were unclean. So do you think the shepherds spent a lot of time going to the temple and worshiping the Lord? Um, In fact, if you read your first century history, um, they didn't let the shepherds have access to the temple because of their low status and their uncleanness, um, which in turn meant that a lot of them chose to be sort of non-religious. That's the, that's the situation with shepherds. Um, isn't it interesting that the angels first show up to these guys, guys that were sort of the non-religious bunch? Do you ever wonder why the Lord shows up to them? Why doesn't he show up to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious guys? Why doesn't he show up to them first? Well, as it turns out, um, um, it's, it's the scrappy shepherd 
that would be willing to receive the gospel. And you know what? It's the religious guys that don't even lift a finger to worry or think about what's going on at all. Do you, um, I've, I've, I remember seeing this, a little uh, sad picture of this when I was a youth pastor. Um, I had uh, two speaking engagements uh, when I was younger. And um, one was in the morning to do a, a Christian school chapel. And then in the afternoon, I was going to a secular high school, public high school, um, uh, Medford, uh, Black Tornadoes. Uh, I was gonna go speak at their, their school. One of the uh, classes, uh, one of the science teachers was teaching evolution. And, um, and he uh, invited me to come and give the other side of the coin of creation versus evolution because a bunch of the students uh, in the class were saying, hey, we need to hear the other side of arguments. And so this, this teacher let me come. So um, it's so funny because um, the, I went to the Christian school and did my best to share the word. And you know what I got from the Christian school? Bunch of yawns and kids slouching in their chairs, just kind of, when's this gonna be over? Whatever, we've heard a million times, the Bible, la, 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 whatever. That's the attitude I received there, um, which is kind of interesting. And then when I went to that secular school, I was actually nervous thinking I might be run out of the school, especially after the morning, how I was received at the Christian school. I was like, this is gonna be horrible. But I went into that and started sharing the word. And you know what was shocking? They were starving spiritually. The kids, even the, the, the teacher of the class was asking really important questions and engaged. The class bell rang and, I, and, and our, we went on with the session for another 30 minutes after kids were supposed to already go to their next class. Like it, I, was, I was just so blessed, these kids. And, and we even shared the gospel and was able to talk to some of the kids afterwards and some of the kids started coming to church. Like it was a really fruitful and amazing thing. And it just reminded me how, um, you know, when you're like me, you were raised in church, you went to church every day of your life, you can get a real ho-hum attitude toward powerful and important things. Um, would you keep your finger here and flip back over to um, back in uh, Matthew chapter two? How did the religious uh, leaders, how did they respond to the hearing of Jesus's coming? It's, uh, I'll just do a little refresher course with you. It says in Matthew chapter two, uh, verse one, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Again, unlikely. Wise men were Babylonians. Are they Christians? Are they good Jewish people? Probably not. These are wise men, the, the very different group, but they're pursuing the Messiah. Um, and they said to, you know, in verse two, saying, where is he that's born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with them. And when he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written of the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art thou the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come the governor and shall rule my people Israel. Um, what's, what's, what's going on here? Herod turns to the Jewish religious guys. Hey, what's this thing about your Messiah? These guys from Babylon are here. Uh, what's the deal? And they're like, well, let's see if we can find the scrolls. And um, let's see, somewhere in Micah, it says something about he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Um, whatever. Like the attitude, did, did the wise men quickly go, oh, this is it? And did they jump up and run to Bethlehem? They didn't even get off their duff for 10 seconds. 
They just looked up their scrolls to give Herod, the wacko leader, a bit of information, but they could care less. They could care less that the prophecy of their own holy scriptures was being fulfilled. By the way, there's a lot of people today who care less about Bible prophecy. They could care less about Bible prophecy. That, that's like these chief priests, scribes. They don't care about the prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. In the same way, some people don't care about prophecy concerning the second coming of Christ. I think it's a huge, huge mistake spiritually. Um, you'll be the chosen frozen. There's something that's really alive about studying Bible prophecy. It's the Bible unfolding in our day, in our time right now. Just like it was happening in Jesus' first coming, and yet the religious leaders react, says, ah, blow the dust off the scrolls, says something about Bethlehem, whatever, we're not going there. It's a long way away, 15 minute hike. Meanwhile, the guys from Babylon came hundreds and hundreds of miles to see Jesus, the Messiah. Um, what, a, what an interesting thing. Lord forbid that we, you and I, become passive and apathetic especially about things of prophecy concerning Jesus and his second coming. Well, verse 10 goes on and it says, um, and the angel said unto him, now, now here's where we get this, um, the, the first Christmas sermon ever given. Uh, this is pretty cool. The angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Um, this great four point sermon given by the, uh, the angels, um, I'm gonna call this the first Christmas sermon ever delivered. And uh, let's, let's just explore the, the points here. Uh, it's a great sermon. First, a joyous introduction, verse 10. Fear not, I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy. A joyous introduction. This is something that should have made everybody rejoice because um, he's gonna be uh, to all people. Um, how many people? All is the operative word there. Not just to the Jews, but to all men and women and people around the globe, including Portland. Everywhere we look, we see horrible, horrible news. I was talking about that earlier. Um, you know, if you're watching, um, you know, around the world, there's all kinds of horrible uh, headlines that, uh, just this week that are kind of shocking. But um, let's, let's remember that we have the good news. Don't ever forget, if you're a news junkie, sometimes you might have to turn that off and just say, you know what? We're gonna actually um, speak the good news of great joy that is Jesus Christ, our savior. Um, watching the news, you're responding, um, you know, you're responding what's going on in the world in the negative, but when you watch the scriptures, you're responding to the good news of Jesus Christ, very important. So number one, you have a joyous introduction, Jesus, the good news. Number two, a most excellent consolation, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, which is Christ, that's the Messiah, the Lord. Um, uh, Christ, the Lord there, the word Lord is, um, uh, you know, basically saying it's the Messiah who's God coming in the flesh. Um, the word savior in that little verse there in verse 11, unto you is born in the city of David a savior. Um, the Greek word is soter, which means deliverer, preserver, one who rescues. 
Um, if you would, you know, like if you're drowning and you throw someone a life-saving ring, um, that's the word soter, a, a preserver, a life preserver. Um, we are in need of rescue. And part of our, you know, being saved is to grab on to the, the rescue ring, which is Jesus. He's the one. When you accept Christ, you're saved from your sins. So a most excellent consolation. Um, number three, you have the, the third point, a wise confirmation. How do we know this is the true Messiah? Well, two signs. This shall be a sign of you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Um, and you might, as, as you know, you've become so familiar with the Christmas story, you might say, well, Brett, that's what everybody knows. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. That'd be like, uh, it'd be like saying the baby is wearing diapers and he's in a nursery. Um, well, that's not the same. Uh, no baby was wearing grave clothes, swaddling clothes, and no baby was laid in a manger. That was not normal. So these were the two signs for these shepherds. Go look in Bethlehem, and when you see a baby wrapped in grave clothes and lying in a manger, that's weird, uh, but that's gonna be where the Messiah is gonna be found. Um, I like that they were to have a wise confirmation. When you hear from the Lord, when you hear from an angel of the Lord, uh, you gotta make sure and confirm it. By the way, when Joseph Smith received his word from Moroni, the angel, um, he made a mistake when he didn't confirm that. Um, you gotta confirm. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Galatians 1, if we or an angel from heaven comes and gives you another gospel than that which we have preached, let that angel be accursed. In other words, that's, that's not an angel from God. Um, and guess what? The Mormons even called a new, another testament, another gospel of the Book of Mormon. Um, and, and they just didn't do their research to say, we need to confirm whether this is from Satan or from God. I know that's very simple, what I just said, but it's so simple, people still miss it, uh, how simple it is. You gotta confirm, especially when you're hearing miraculous things. And these guys had some points of confirmation, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Um, that's gonna be cool, a wise confirmation. Number four, and lastly, a glorious expression. Verse 14, he says, uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Um, from the Old Testament, there were many signs about the Messiah that were prophesied. Um, um, you know, I love this, uh, that he would, uh, you know, be bringing peace and goodwill toward men. Um, there's two layers of that, first coming, second coming, peace from our sin and death and destruction, second coming, true peace that's gonna be a lasting peace brought onto this earth. <clears throat> Both are gonna be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But some of the Old Testament signs, you can jot some of these down really quick. Um, Messiah would be a human, not an angel. Genesis 3.15, Hebrews 2.16 tells us that. He would be a Jew, not a Gentile. Genesis 12, one and two, Numbers 24, 17, talk about this. He'd be from the tribe of Judah, Judah Genesis 20, uh, 49, verse 10. He would be of the family of David, line of David, 2 Samuel 7, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, and born in Bethlehem. I've just given you six uh, little things there. Um, but it's an amazing thing that these prophecies were all fulfilled, more than 300 of them in the Old Testament fulfilled in the perfect person of Jesus in his story. So really all of history is leading up to this point. You might even say history is actually his story leading to when he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, Jeremiah 1.12 says it this way, then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen for I will hasten my word to perform it. God is keeping his word and everything that Jesus 
was having to fulfill, he perfectly fulfilled more than 300 prophecies directly about the Messiah. I love that book, you know, Science Speaks, Peter Stone. I've told you many times, but there's a couple of analogies given, you know, where the odds of just eight of those prophecies coming to pass, let alone 300, um, are so unlikely. Born as a virgin, um, born in Bethlehem, uh, of the line of Ju Judah, of the, of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David. Um, you know, all these fulfillments, um, just, just, just eight of them. Um, Peter Stoner, this, this guy who wrote the book Science Speaks um, years ago, but he did the math of the probability, uh, one in 10 to the 17th power. That's, you know, uh, that's a big number. If you're a mathematician, it's a hard number to even imagine. But he, I, I forget if he used the nuts or the, or the silver dollar. There's two anal analogies, but I like the, the nuts in California. The what? Well, if you took the whole state of California and it filled it three feet full of nuts, uh, like little, little nuts that a squirrel would like. But on one of those nuts, you secretly took a permanent marker and you put a little X on one of those nuts that filled the state of California three feet deep. And then you flew over California with your airplane and you have a little chipmunk with you with a little backpack and a little parachute and you kick him out of the airplane. And there he's flying, ah, flying squirrel. And all of a sudden, poof, the chute comes out and he lands somewhere in California. And then the first nut that he picks up just happens by chance to be the one that you put an X on it. That would be one in 10 to the 17th power. The odds of that are, some might even call that impossible. Um, by the way, evolution requires way more fantasy level probabilities to have happened at all. And yet people are willing to believe that. That's shocking to me. But um, anyway, uh, God keeping his word, he's faithful to perform it. And uh, that's why the angels were celebrating. Um, everything was pointing to this moment and it's finally here. Um, that's why they're saying glory to God, you know, uh, in the highest peace on earth, goodwill to men. They're celebrating because he's here. And, and humanity doesn't even know what they're gonna get here yet, but the angels seem to know. And so they're celebrating um, and they're worshiping. Um, so when the shepherds heard this, did they just sit around and do nothing like the priests in Jerusalem? No, look at verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told of them by the shepherds. Man, the shepherds are kind of the first evangelists going around telling, man, we heard these words from an angel. We went and confirmed it. We saw the baby. Um, I love that they, they came with haste, it says there in verse 16. Um, and that's that thing, you know, the, the secularist who needs a savior versus the religionist who's just sitting in Jerusalem and could care less. This is that juxtaposition that we're kind of comparing. They ran to see it with their own eyes and then broadcast it to everyone. Um, what do we learn about the Lord? Um, you know, when you and I are learning good things from the scriptures, do we go and broadcast it? Or we just sit around and go, hmm, interesting, whatever. That's the way of the chief priests in Jerusalem. Um, notice in verse 18, it says, all that heard it wondered, but compare that with um, what it says in verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
Is there a difference between wondering and pondering? Um, yes. Um, the, those who ponder are the ones that sort of store it in their heart, if you would, and tuck it away to maybe understand it more later. I, I love this about Mary. She ponders this, all these events, the shepherds and everybody coming to see Jesus. You know, she's like pondering this. Um, and that's what you and I should do, by the way, when we don't fully understand what's going on. Some people just stand on, wow, I wonder what's going on. And then they forget about it. But Mary pondered, that's, that's a better plan, a wiser way of handling it. When I read the Bible and I don't understand things, I choose to just ponder and say, I'm, I'm gonna understand that later probably. And I've found the longer I walk with the Lord, the longer I read the Bible, the more the Lord just answers those questions and then more questions come and then you just ponder those. Um, but if you let yourself become derailed with wonderment, say, man, I wonder how that could happen. I wonder if that's true. I wonder, wonder, wonder. Then you might fly off the handle and be somebody who just wanders right into oblivion. But if you ponder things, um, you know, uh, I've seen people derailed because they can't, haven't been able to figure out the Holy Trinity. And my word to you on that is good luck. The mystery of the Trinity, it's, it's evidenced in the Bible. The scriptures talk about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one being. How can that be, Brett? One plus one plus one doesn't equal one. Yeah, but one times one times one equals one. But that doesn't even answer it, I know. But guess what? The mystery of the church, great is the mystery of godliness, that's the Father, who came in the flesh, that's the Son, and was born of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a mystery, and I love that, that God, if he were small enough to you, you and me to fit in our brains, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Um, so when we get things we can't figure out, guess what? Ponder and say, Lord, reveal that in time. And I have to admit, the, the idea of the Trinity gets more and more um, uh, understandable as years go by, but I still can't say that I've got it all nailed down perfectly. Uh, I just believe it. I choose to believe it, um, and I'm not gonna let it derail you know, my ability to fo- follow Jesus. Um, I like Mary for her pondering rather than just wondering. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. I love that. These guys are, you know, if they weren't believers or God-fearers before this, they sure are now uh, as they're wondering and praising and celebrating. I love that. And verse 21, when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Uh, So just as instructed, Joseph and Mary named him Jesus. Circumcision was of course required by the law. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law and everything about his life. Um, But Leviticus 12.3 says that they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Um, Why on the eighth day? Uh, Well, it's interesting because um, they they didn't know. I don't think Abraham knew anything about, um, you know, um, blood coagulation and wounds of a first newborn. But um, there, there's an interesting book uh, called None of These Diseases by S.I. Uh, McMillan, uh, who is a doctor, um, and talks about biblical health in kind of interesting ways. But, um, you know, basically explores secrets for the 21st century um, 
basically, uh, when he wrote this, uh, you know. But one of the things he writes about is this idea of circumcising on the eighth day. Why the eighth day? Well, newborns are susceptible to bleeding in the first five days, as it turns out. Uh, vitamin K in normal ranges, um, five to seven days, um, it's, the, it's the eighth day when it's kind of fir- the first day for safe for circumcision. Um, uh, and it has to go with prothrombin test and, uh, um, and uh, measures how long it takes for blood to clot uh, in a sample. Um, and it peaks out. Its most uh, powerful clotting time is uh, at 100, 110%, as it turns out, on the eighth day, which is kind of interesting. It's almost like God said, uh, I want you to do this, but make sure and do it on the eighth day. Because he knew medically that was the way it uh, should happen. Like God knows that. Uh, one thing about all the things we about the Bible, we, we realize that God knows what he's talking about when it comes to biology and archeology, span like we talked about earlier, and all the sciences. Um, uh, here's a debate. Should we circumcise our babies today? Um, and there's, there's a debate that rages about that. Um, and arguably, we can make uh, an argument uh, biologically for circumcision about cleanliness and uh, uh, all kinds of other things we could talk about. But um, if you're circumcising your baby to be a keeper of the law, you probably shouldn't do it for that reason. Because why? Anybody? We're no longer under the law. We don't keep the law. Praise the Lord for that. Otherwise, you'd be stoning your child outside the town when they're nine years old and they're misbehaving if we were to keep the law perfectly. Um, so, um, and, and even the New Testament takes us off the hook uh, when it comes to circumcision for religious reasons. Galatians 6.15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avail anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. We're new creatures in Christ. Romans chapter two, verse 25 through 26. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. In other words, it undoes it. Therefore, if, these un, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Um, Paul's talking about how circumcision is an old law uh, practice. Um, uh, they were asking Paul questions about this. Um, Paul answered in Romans 2, 29, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart that is in the New Testament, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Um, uh, you see, the point that I'm making here is that circumcision is more of a spiritual issue of the heart today. And by the way, in the New Testament, circumcision is sort of transferred to an, uh, actually an act we get to do, one of the ordinances. Does anybody know what circumcision is, is picturing in New Testament church behavior? Somebody said it, baptism, that's right. Um, baptism is sort of the new um, outward sign of, of us being a, a follower of Jesus. For Abraham, the outward sign was circumcision. Um, so, uh, so if you are gonna circumcise your child, um, you, can, you can do it for, for health reasons. If you, if you do your research and find out the benefits of circumcision or not, it's, it's up to you, but you're not under biblical rule uh, one way or the other. Um, it's something for you to, to kind of think about. Um, now, um, all that to say, verse, uh, it goes on in verse 22. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him... Uh, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, the Lord 
uh, uh, the law of the Lord. Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which uh, is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, this actually comes from uh, Leviticus chapter 12. And again, I told you, Jesus came not to do away with the law, but to, to fulfill the law. Everything about Jesus in his life would fulfill the law perfectly. Um, that's the, the truth of the matter. So, um, you know, um, there would normally be in Leviticus 12, a lamb sacrificed for the male um, to, to the dedication um, of, this, of this new uh, baby. Um, but does anybody know why they, Joseph and Mary aren't bringing a lamb, but they're bringing either two turtle doves uh, and a partridge in a pear tree? I mean, no, I mean, two turtle doves uh, or, or two young pigeons. Anybody know why they would do that instead of a lamb? Because they were poor. The book of Leviticus said, if you don't have enough money to afford a lamb, um, then you bring two turtle doves um, or pigeons to um, make that swap. That's Leviticus chapter 12, verse eight. So interesting that Joseph and Mary, that's just kind of interesting. Jesus was born of a poor family. And they, they, they would have been known as poor for coming in there to Jerusalem and offering two turtle doves. They would go, oh, these are poor people. That, that's kind of interesting. Made himself of no reputation. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Uh, he wasn't born in the high and mighty with a great you know, family wealth and stuff like that. Um, so, so it says there in verse 25, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. The consolation of Israel is a term used for the coming of the Messiah, the comfort that the Jews were waiting for is the Messiah. So this old fellow was just sitting around waiting for the comfort of, of Jerusalem or Israel, um, and he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Um, and, he, uh, and he came by the Spirit unto the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, you know, the two turtle doves, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, um, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Um, we have Simeon, who, by the way, uh, was 113 years old. <laughs> he was an old fella at this time. Um, and he was watching for the Messiah. And he got a word, I'm not gonna kick the bucket until the Messiah comes, is basically what he said. Um, uh, by the way, when he does this, he takes up the child and he busts out into song. Some, some people uh, call this the song of Simeon or the nunc diminutus. Uh, <laughs> Brad, why do they make these funny names for all these songs? The, you know, we had songs from Elizabeth, song from Mary, song from Zacharias, song really when the angels announced glory to God, you know, um, and they're all the Magnificat, the Benedictus, and in this case, the Nunc Dimittis is the, the word of Simeon, um, but I like to just call it the song of, of Simeon. Um, but it means to depart and dismiss. 
Um, he dismisses his life and he says, I'm ready to die now and dismissed because the Messiah is here. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he recognizes. It doesn't seem that Mary and Joseph walked up and said, is somebody here waiting to meet the Messiah? We happen to have him right here. Like they didn't do that. This guy goes to Jerusalem led by the Holy Spirit and the temple and he walks right up to Joseph and Mary and grabs the baby and said, okay, I've seen the Christ. Like this guy was, was really a radical dude, this old fella. And uh, he says, okay, Lord, take me home now. I'm ready to go. Um, notice the, the, the names that sort of Simeon sings about here. Um, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He says there in verse 32, a light to lighten the Gentiles. Um, do you understand how advanced Simeon was in his theology by just saying that? Because if you read your New Testament, how long would it take Peter and everybody to wrestle with the salvation of the Gentiles? It'd take them most of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Like it was really hard for them to think, oh, you mean the Gentiles are included with salvation? But here's old Simeon saying, this is the Messiah. It's not only gonna save Israel, but he's gonna be a light to the Gentiles. Man, this guy was way ahead of them theologically, um, which is one of the names of Jesus. Thy salvation, the glory of Israel, the light for the Gentiles. And then Simeon turns to Mary in verse 34. It says, and Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Wow, now Simeon's getting kind of cryptic, but he, he gives sort of a, a three-part message um, and it includes, interestingly, a stone, a sword, and a sign. Um, what's he talking about? First, let's, let's refer to this, uh, this idea of a stone. He says there in verse, um, uh, verse 34, he says to his mother Mary, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The word set there is a word that is referring to like what a stonemason would do by setting or laying a brick or a block to lay it down. Um, but it's also used uh, buried in a grave, but set in place like a foundational stone. And those of you who know your Bible, is Jesus referred to a stone ever? All the time, all the way in Daniel's prophecies are referred to the stone that was cut without hands. Um, you know, the stone that would be hit with a rod of Moses in the wilderness and water would gush out. And 1 Corinthians 10 says that stone was Jesus. Um, the rejected cornerstone, the stone that would be, you'd build on. Um, we even sang, you know, uh, Psalm 18, verse two tonight, for the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Um, interesting, Jesus said this about himself in Matthew 21, verse 44, and whosoever shall fall on this stone um, shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. What's Jesus saying about himself being the stone? It's almost like Jesus saying, you'll either be broken before him or you'll be crushed by him. That's a radical thought. Jesus will either be the rock of sure foundation for you where you have to be broken and repent of your sins and then you have Jesus as your sure cornerstone. But if you reject Jesus, then you're gonna end up in that group that's gonna be on the other side of it where he's gonna grind him to powder. 
Um, the stone, the rock, Jesus is all throughout the Bible. Genesis 49, 24 was talked about Judah. The tribe of Judah would deliver the stone. Psalm 71, three, Deuteronomy 31, all through the Bible, this idea of the stone. Um, and that's what I think this guy, old guy Simeon's referring to, that he would be set as the chief cornerstone fulfilling scripture. Number two, not only a stone, but Simeon says uh, um, a sign. He says, um, uh, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, a sign which will be spoken against, or, or the word is slandered. Um, and that's all, all throughout the gospel narrative. Jesus was slandered. Slandered by who? The, the religious leaders, mostly. John chapter eight, you remember this, this, this is just one example. Um, John eight, verse 18, I am one that bears witness of myself and the father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, where is your father? <laughs> um, now you gotta understand what they're saying. Jesus said, you neither know me nor my father. If you'd known me, you'd have known my father also. Well, and then John eight thirty nine, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And then John 8, 56, your father, Abraham rejoiced to see my day when he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews to him, thou art not yet 50 years old and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am, I am. Does that sound familiar? I am. I am that I am at the burning bush with Charlton Eston, I mean Moses. Um, that's what he's saying. Uh, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them. So he passed by. Why did they pick up stones to, to kill Jesus at that point? Because he was making himself equal to God. It always cracks me up, these groups to say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus said, I am the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. And he made this statement. So they picked up rocks to stone him. If he was just gonna say, I'm, I'm tight with God and I know God, they'd say, well, good for you. But he was claiming to be the I am. And this freaked them out. And they said, let's stone him to death. He said, I, you know, he, he told them, I spoke the worlds into existence. I was the voice of the burning bush. <laughs> with, with Moses. Like, um, uh, and so they knew what he was claiming. So one of the signs that Simeon's talking about is that he would be ridiculed at his birth, slandered at his death, death. they would speak against his resurrection and they'd mock his second coming. Um, when people speak against Jesus, even today, they're fulfilling what Simeon prophesied here about the sign. So we have the stone, a sign, and then a sword, number three. Um, this, this sword uh, is verse 35. Yea, a sword shall pierce through my own soul also, um, thy, thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Um, this is the sword that would pierce. You know, you can talk about the sword, that, the spear that pierced Jesus aside, but I think he's talking to Joseph and Mary about his death. Um, and how it would pierce them through in some ways. Well, now, as we uh, uh, come to this next person, Anna, we're, we're bumping into all these interesting characters, Simeon, who's old, and now we've got another uh, lady who's very, very old, 
Um, it's the night of uh, the older folks getting their press here in the story. Anna, um, her husband died 84 years earlier. Um, check this out. It says in verse 36, and there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with an husband 70, uh, pardon me, seven years from her virginity. Um, so uh, she was somewhere um, uh, probably just over 100 years old, 103, 105, people guess. Um, and she was a widow of about, uh, of about four score and four years. So a widow for 84 years, that's a long time, um, which departed not from the temple, <clears throat> but served God <clears throat> with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I love this, this lady, she's, she's, a, she's a widow and you might call her a widow indeed. What's a widow indeed? Um, well, if you know Paul's word to Timothy, there were widows that were particularly dialed in who had been widowed for a long time, but if they were upright and upstanding widows, they were to be given a place of honor and serving even in the church there with Paul and Timothy. This, this is sort of a pre-New Testament church era woman who's, she's a servant in the temple for years, 80 plus years she's been serving in the temple. And she sees this little hubbub going on with Joseph and Mary and this guy, Simeon, who's saying, I have seen the Messiah. And, and he's talking about all this kind of rich stuff that we just went over. And she gets in on the action and says, wow, what's going on over here? And she also, as a prophetess, um, um, by the way, there's several great prophetesses of the Bible. There's the prophetess Deborah. Um, you could also talk about um, the Holda. Uh, Miriam was called a prophetess. Uh, Holda, there's actually gates in Jerusalem called the Holda gates that were named after the prophetess Holda. Um, that I'll show you when we go there in Israel here in a few weeks. We're getting ready to go in a, in a little while uh, to Israel. Um, but, um, but all that to say, this, uh, this, this great prophetess uh, served the Lord with fasting and prayer night and day. Um, there's so much that older people can do um, for the kingdom, but I, I worry that there's, there's kind of the, the lethargy, lethargy that just kind of sets in and we, we just kind of think, well, I can't do anything. I, the church doesn't want old people running around doing stuff, and, and which is not true by the way, but I, I think we tell ourselves that. But here's an old lady who's just fasting and praying. Oh man, this is so cool. This, this lady is part of the story because she was spiritually just dialed in um, and she had no distraction. She was a single woman using her singleness uh, for the purpose of serving the Lord. And it's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, um, does she pout for 84 years? No, she served God night and day. Um, and uh, I think she learned to be content in her situation. Pretty cool. Well, verse 38, and she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I love that, that she, she was giving us that redemption. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. Now redemption, what a powerful part of what Jesus did. Bought us, paid our price. We sold ourselves out to sin and she's already preaching redemption and he's just a baby. You gotta love that. Verse 39, and when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew 
and wax strong in, the, in spirit, filled with wisdom and grace of God. The grace of God was upon him. Then in verse 41, um, down all the way to the end, uh, 52, we looked at that whole section um, on Wednesday, or last Sunday, last, last weekend, we looked at that. And uh, if you missed that section, you might wanna uh, get caught up from last Sunday. Uh, other than that, there is chapter two, and we did it fairly quickly, amazing. Uh, let's pray together. <laughs> Lord, we're so thankful. Uh, what a great story. Um, these, these old people in the story who had such anticipation um, and were so dialed in and sensitive and tuned in to the things that your spirit was doing through your son already. Give us that same zeal toward your word and toward the prophecies of your word. May we look with anticipation to your second coming. We, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be like the religious leaders of the day who could care less about what was going on. And I pray that we would be looking to your scriptures, that like the shepherds, that we'd make haste to learn more and to be investigative and learn about your word and about the truth of the scriptures. Um, help us not to be lazy or lackadaisical or apathetical, Lord. I pray that we'd be um, on fire. Lord, fill us with your spirit like these two, Deb, uh, the Anna and, and, um, and Simeon. Fill us with your spirit that we might have, not by our own might or by our own power, but by your, your strength and power. Lord, may we be strong walking with you with great hope of your return. So bless these, your people, as we go our way tonight. We pray that you just reward them for taking this time in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.